Welcome to Wilton's Music Hall podcast. Bringing to life the extraordinary history of the oldest grand music hall in the world and its present as a world-class theatre and music venue. It is a special co-production with The Roundhouse. 1859 was an incredible year in British history. Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species is published, highlighting the ferocity of Victorian inquisitiveness. Engineering is having continual eureka moments, partially thanks to Eisenbard Kingdom Brunel. And 1859 was, of course, the year John Wilton opened the doors to his magnificent music hall. In this episode, we look at some of the incredible thinking that brought astonishing magic tricks to Wilton's. You'll hear about the world's first female hypnotist, flaming chandeliers and groundbreaking illusions like Pepper's Ghost. To give an idea of how magic and science overlapped when our old music hall first opened its doors, we have Christopher Green. Christopher is an associate artist at Wilton's. The associates are a group of world-class artists from a range of backgrounds who use their experience to help shape the Wilton's programme. In those days, in the mid-19th century, there was really no difference between a scientific demonstration and, and show business. As the century went on, they became sort of, they became divided. And I think we've still got that division. And, and I'm all really invested in, in bringing the two, the two back together. So yes, people would have demonstrations. People would, rich people would have parties in their house, whether somebody would be invited along to do a, you know, um, a demonstration of, uh, of animal magnetism or, or mesmerism or these things, or, or, or seances, that's what seances were, or even a demonstration on, you know, how the heart works and these kind of things. Uh, so there was very little distinction between, between the science and the showbiz. Christopher's show, The Singing Hypnotist, which he's performed at Wilton's, is the result of months of research into Victorian attitudes towards magic and the occult. Very nicely, I was invited to be the first artist in residence at the British Library. And I was like, great, I'm really interested in hypnosis. I'd like to study the science and the showbiz of hypnosis. Uh, I ended up kind of way exceeding my expectations uh, by writing a book for them, uh, which, which they published, uh, which was called Overpowered, the Science and Showbiz of Hypnosis. And, and then making a show, The Singing Hypnotist, and... There'd never been a, a hypnotist who used songs to hypnotise, which really surprised me. I thought that there would have been, and I couldn't find that person. I uh, couldn't find anyone who'd done it, so I, I became that person. Now hypnotism is the force by which the world is ruled. It heals the sick and by its use the wisest men are fooled. I've studied hypnotism and I practice every day. When I do things that others can't, I always hear them say it must have been Svengali in disguise with his bright hypnotic eyes. I asked Christopher if there were any favourite characters from his research and one came to mind. Annie de Montfort is the, one of the characters that, um, that I was really excited about because I, um, in the British Library they had two or three posters of, of, of her and then there's no other information about her and so I went into the archives in a proper kind of researcher way and, and just dug out these little tiny bits of information and found out as much as I could about her 
um, mainly from the trade publication, which is called The Era, which is a bit like The Stage now, or in fact, it's more like kind of online forums where people would say, you know, I'm looking for a, um, a manager to help me with this or I'm looking for a costume designer or whatever. It's like The Trade publication. Um, you know, she, there was one point where she sacked her manager and her manager's advertising for work and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. There's all these little stories. But she was a... A working class woman um, from the cotton mills in Lancashire and she, in Leicestershire, sorry, and she uh, invented herself, reinvented herself and became a female mesmerist, which is quite an amazing thing to do. And like now, there are hardly any women doing it. And so it was a, a brilliant thing to do. And she, her catchphrase was, mind governs the world, which is so like modern self help. You know, these notions of you are not what you think, don't trust your thoughts, you know. Um, it's, it's a very modern concept. I think she was absolutely brilliant by the sound of it. You've heard how Adam lost his home, although the fault was Eve's. They had no time to pack their trunks, they simply took their leaves. The serpent hypnotised poor Eve when she ate the fruit. The snake took his false whiskers off and said you'll have to scoot it must have been Svengali in disguise with his bright hypnotic eyes and last year when I curated uh, the exhibition on 19th century popular entertainment at the British Library um, we based it around five characters and she was one of the characters and it was really nice to employ someone to be Annie de Montfort and the thing I was perhaps most um, delighted by was to um, recreate her mesmerism routine from the 1860s which was described in a newspaper article there was detailed detailed description of what her routine was and and bring that to life and try, try it out on a modern audience using this fantastic actress yeah so suddenly this forgotten character and her routines which have just been forgotten for a hundred and whatever years is now being brought to life and and, and acted out, you know, regularly. And there's something really thrilling about that. It's also shocking how little it's changed. It's not that dissimilar from a, a modern um, hypnosis performance. So she's saying, pretend to pretend to be uh, in, a, in a minstrel band and you can play the clarinet and you can play the banjo, like that, which is pretty much the same as like, saying, pretend to be um, Lady Gaga live on stage at Wembley Arena, go, you know, which is more or less what, <laughs> it's the same thing, really. Nothing new under the sun. A doctor fell into a well and broke his collarbone. He should have tended to the sick and left the well alone. He held on to the bucket rope. I cut it and he fell. And though he once was with the sick, he now is with the well. <laughs> it must have been. Christopher touches on hypnosurgery in his show, the practice of undergoing an operation without traditional anaesthetic. I don't know a huge amount about hypnosurgery, but it's just uh, it's just one of those things that you think can this be possible that we can you can just do it uh, without standard anaesthetic. You know, we're terrified about being about things that are going to hurt. Um, I'm not advocating that we should all have surgery without anaesthesia. I did have a tooth removed without without um, any pain relief, just to see if I could do it, and I did. I sort of self-hypnotised myself, um, which sounds really hardcore, 
but I just got her there with the needle ready to go. And I said, if it really, really hurts, just give me the... <laughs> and actually, I, I, I did it. Yeah, just... She kept saying, are you sure you're okay? And I was like, stop asking me. I will tell you if I want the pain relief. And actually, it was fine. So it's all about being in the moment. So you just say, can I cope with this right now in this moment? And the answer is nearly always yes, but I'm scared it's going to get worse. So if you don't let yourself go to that, but it will hurt in the future, and you just concentrate on, can I cope with this right now? Then the answer is nearly always yes. And that just feels like a huge life skill. Christopher Green isn't the only enchanting performer to grace the stage at Wilton's. Morgan and West are a time-travelling magical duo and are also associate artists. We'll move on from hypnosis in just a second, but I wanted to get their opinion on modern-day hypnotism. Hypnosis is a funny so one. Hypnosis is a really funny one because no way of having a sort of control group with hypnosis. Some people it works on, some, some people, people it doesn't. doesn't. And you can hypnotise people with no training as long as you basically come across like you can hypnotise people. Yeah. The biggest thing in hypnotising someone is, is acting like you're a hypnotist. But some people it just doesn't work on. I am unhypnotisable. You could get the best hypnotist in the world and they could never hypnotise me. I'm unhypnotisable. I just don't work that way. But I'm not saying that people that are doing it are faking it. They're not faking it a lot of the time. Well, sometimes they are. Sometimes there's peer pressure and stage lights and all that kind of stuff. But, but it's this weird nebulous thing and no one understands it. No one know what it, knows what it is. Which is why it's very it's been put to very few uses in the real world other than hypnotherapy. If I was a hypnotherapist, I would get a little twirly moustache, a waistcoat, and a, I mean, I've got the most of it anyway, yeah, yeah. and swing the pocket watch back and forth. Yeah. I totally would. One of the most famous tricks to ever be performed at Wilton's was called Pepper's Ghost. A Victorian illusion, but the same technology was also used to project a ghostly image of Kate Moss into an Alexander McQueen show in 2006. The Pepper's Ghost was an illusion. Basically, it was the appearance of a ghost on stage. It's an amazing illusion. It's a clever piece of optics, basically. Because this is the era of magic when performers were really embracing technology because technology was making these huge leaps and bounds. And so you could show people stuff they'd never seen before and sort of present it as magic. And it didn't matter whether it was really magical or whether people thought it was magic or not because it was really impressive. And so a lot of people did stuff with projection and stuff like that or with things. Um, And one of the things they did was You'd have someone dressed as a ghost, and by shining a really bright light on that person, if the stage was dark enough, the light would reflect off of them, reflect off of the glass, and the audience could see it. So you'd see this sort of half-translucent image of a, of a ghost live on stage. Much like, you know, so when you're in a house and it's dark, and you can see your reflection in the window, but it's like a, not a full reflection, it's like a half-reflection. Pepper's Ghost was first performed at Wilton's in 1862 by a Mr Hoffman, who licensed the trick from its creator, Dr Pepper. However, John Wilton wasn't impressed. A news article quite dramatically titled The Ghost in the Queen's Bench summarises a court case by Hoffman against John Wilton. Basically, Wilton wasn't happy with the quality of the ghost, He dismissed Hoffman after three weeks of an eight-week contract, and Hoffman took him to court to claim the damages. In the end, John Wilton was deemed to have broken the contract, so he had to pay the grand sum of ten guineas, which isn't nothing, it's about 680 quid today. One of the reasons why Pepper's Ghost is so interesting is because it's a great example of Victorian spiritualism. The idea that spirits and ghosts live on outside of the body. 
something magicians Morgan and West were able to put in context for me. The thing with spiritualism is it, it traded that strange line between, at the time, obviously, science was burgeoning massively in the 19th century, and at the time, you could really be someone that investigated ghosts and science in a respectable way because no one knew better. No one knew otherwise. And so you could just be like, yeah, I'm a scientist. I'm investigating ghosts. The, 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 the world of science as we know it only has really existed in the last 90 years. I mean, plate yeah. tectonics is only a theory that's 50 years old. Yeah. 50 years ago, you mentioned plate tectonics to someone and they're like, what? And you go, oh, that's how earthquakes happen. No. Tectonic plates don't move. The earth isn't moving. And that was the 60s. That was the 60s, yeah. Like the 1960s. Yeah, so spiritualism became really big. The Fox sisters did it in 18-whatever and invented the Church of Spiritualism, basically. Yeah, it was around, spiritualism was around for about 60 years, really. Yeah. It kind of turned and up, and then just before they died, they went, well, it was all fake, wasn't it? And everyone went, oh. Oh, I see. I see. But for a while, it was massive, and it was like the thing to do. And it was kind of almost a fashionable thing to do, spiritualism. And, and you'd have groups of mediums, especially in America, would go around the country, and in each town they would have a thing called, uh, like they would have a, a book, essentially, which everyone would know where it was. It would be in a local library or something like that, where as one medium came into town and they gleaned information about people who lived in the town, they'd jot down the information in the book so that the next medium coming in had a head start. Like, oh, uh, on the high street, number 32's recently had a bereavement and blah, blah, blah. And they'd find this book and they'd go, okay. Whereas this kind of unwritten deal that they'd all help each other out in this kind of big circular way. I was excited to find out from Morgan and West how performing magic has changed since the 1860s when Wilton's opened. 150 years ago, entertainment was different. And because entertainment was different, magic was different. And all forms of entertainment at the same time were different. Also, like, when Houdini... Houdini did a famous escape from a pair of handcuffs called the Mirror Cuffs, set by the Daily Mirror. Took him hours, like, literally hours, and he was behind a screen... So, so an audience, an audience came to this theatre in London, a huge theatre in London, and sat for hours watching a screen, like a, like a, like a curtain, watching a curtain. There was a band playing two songs, stagger out, and someone would cut his coat off of him, and he'd stagger back. And, but he'd, that, that trick would take hours. Houdini would be like, would spend months and months and months building up rivalries with people. Like with other magicians who'd steal his... So he'd go to a town and there'd be another magician in that town who'd stolen his act and saying that they were the king of the escapes. And Houdini would say, no, I'm the king of escapes. And he'd challenge them in the, in the newspapers and stuff and the other person would accept the challenge and they have this big escape challenge. And then Houdini would win, but he'd say, yes, I won and I'm the greatest escape artist in the world, but you are a worthy competitor and then, you know, I give you my endorsement. And that was all set up. The whole thing over months was set up by Houdini because there would have been a third magician in the town who really did steal his act. And so what he'd do is Houdini would invent his own magician, his, his own escapologist, plant them, give him some of the act, and then, like, endorse them so that some poor schmuck who stole Houdini's act suddenly hasn't got a shoe in because his main rival is getting all the press. Like, Houdini was no, was no fool. Like, Houdini's a great genius was his marketing genius. Like, he really knew how to sell the myth of Houdini. Like, that, that's what made him great. I mean, in the early days, Houdini and his brother Theo would go and beat people up if they stole their axe. Who knew the world of magic was so violent? As well as magic shows, Wilton's Grand Music Hall was a technological marvel in itself. Its roof was adorned with a sunburner, which threw light and a great amount of heat through the hall. Christopher Sugg, Victorian lighting expert, explains. So, in Wilton's... Um, an early sunburner made by de Vries was 
absolutely enormous and looks as if it had a whole series of glass or crystal pieces which provided extra illumination by the flames, which, of course, being, being a flame, it, it would move around a bit, so you get a lot of um, interesting reflections and movements. And looking up into this, you would see a series of circular, um, circular burners with a number of flames pointing outwards, and these flames would um, be pointing at an angle downwards um, so that they turned up into the flue with the air movement. And this this drew the heat up as well. So you had a, uh, an illumination um, and ventilation. Quite a lot of very large buildings built in the Victorian age still have their sunburners because they were built into the structure of the building and it was easier to turn it off and leave it than it was to actually um, take it down. Unfortunately, the sunburner no longer remains at Wilton's, but check out the William Sugg website if you want to see pictures of ones that do. They're seriously huge. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and goodbye from Grace's Alley. Wilton's Music Hall podcast was produced and presented by me, Max Levine, with support from David Graham. It is a special production between the Roundhouse and Wilton's Music Hall.